This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. So it's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have served as your medical director the last two summer sessions, but I want to do a very quick and important shout out to Eileen Cheevers, who really, she and I were a team. It wasn't one person doing it all, and it was sometimes a little hairy, but we got through it all. I think you'll enjoy the program. We've got really grade A speakers from top to bottom, and I think a kind of cohesive program day-to-day -day is kind of themed. So I'm gonna start off with literature, and in an hour or so, uh, I'm gonna go through a lot of things. Um, there's my conflict of interest. And I'm gonna start with patient care. I believe a happy office is a productive office. And so on Halloween, we dress up, and that includes me. This is me on Halloween trying to bite the neck of one of my patients. Well, I really wasn't gonna bite her neck, but she gratefully posed for me in that. So we dress up, we have fun. I think it's good to have fun. This is my normal modus operandi when it's not Halloween. So patient care, couple of things. And there's a small, there are a few small changes from the handout, not much, but these first few slides are different. So what should we wear? You know, how should we dress? So this was a single center, so you have to take that with a grain of salt. Might be different in Utah or California or Illinois or Texas, but Miami, and they asked a bunch of people what they wanted their doctors to wear, healthcare providers to wear, everybody to wear, everybody should be professional, and they wanted white coats. Look, it's overwhelming, 73% white coats. Scrubs, there's okay with scrubs if you're doing surgery, but just to go in an office and do this, um, no, that's unacceptable. And then, uh, that's my cell phone, which, if you know my um, email address, it's Vampire Ted, so that makes obvious sense. Uh, casual clothes, no. Suit, really no. They want white coats. More so with the older the patient. Now, uh, are there any guys with beards in here? Most of the ladies probably don't have beards. But you can pass this along to any guys with beards in your office. So beards, are beards important? Are they a problem? So this was a great, from the orthopedic literature, they had people who were clean shaven who had beards, and then they had them do a bunch of different head movements, and there were agar plates underneath their head to see what they shed and what they would grow. And they looked at no mask, mask, or mask with a hood, that's the hood that you're seeing there, um, and then they wanted to see what bacteria were shed and was this an important problem or not. And here's what they, there's the hood, and here's what they found. So if there was a mask, it didn't matter if you were clean shaven or bearded, it was the same um, number of bacteria. And that's here, the red is um, with, um, the red is with, I think that's the one without uh, a mask. If you had a hood, hood didn't add 
but if you had no mask and you had oh, Rhett's beard, if you have no mask and you have a beard and you go like this, so theoretically that would be over a surgical wound. Now these are orthopods, so they're thinking about huge orthopedic wounds. We don't tend to have very large wounds, but think about Mohs surgery or a big excision. So if you have a beard, you really should wear a mask. Adding a hood doesn't matter, but if you have a beard and you do surgery without a mask, you can shed significant number of bacteria. So that was the message there. Beards are okay, masks are all. So here's our first ARS question. We have ARS questions throughout this. Where did the ARS question go? Okay, workplace violence when there is a legitimate association between the perpetrator of the violence and the victim in a workplace, this isn't domestic, where is workplace violence most common? Retail sales, healthcare industry, construction industry, financial services, that would be like banks. Don't, not all bank robbers, but you know, violence in the workplace and legal offices. What do you think? Okay, 71%, three quarters of you said healthcare industry. Well, congratulations, you're absolutely right. Highest number of such incidents, either verbal or physical abuse in a workplace where there's a legitimate association between the perpetrator of violence and the victim is in the healthcare industry. 90% or so by the patients, but also family members and even friends. I just point this out to remind you to protect yourselves. And when you're sitting in an office, something I tell everybody in our office, never have the exit blocked where you can't get out of the room if you need to. Never sit where you're here, the patient or patient's family or patient and family are here, and there's the exit. You should always be able to exit. Let's talk a little bit about surgery. So, People say, yeah, 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 sure, sunburn causes cancer. Show me the proof. Well, here's the proof. Two studies, one in women, one in men, long-term studies with long follow-up, and they defined a history of sunburning as 10 or more blistering or painful sunburns for men, six or more for women, and look at the relative risk, that's the RR, for melanoma, twice over twice, for men and almost twice, certainly over one and a half times increased risk for women. For squamous cell and basal cell, there's an increased risk. It's not as dramatic as melanoma, but there's clear over long periods of time with thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands of patients, sunburning increases your risk of melanoma, basal cell and squamous cell. So it is important for us to tell patients that. Ultraviolet A protection from windshields and side windows is worst in what brand of car? Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Lexus, Volkswagen, or Audi? What do you think? Okay, nice spread. Some of you have no trust in Mercedes-Benz. 
uh, Volkswagen didn't do so well, and Lexus didn't do so well. Y'all like Audis and BMWs. Hmm, you're going to be surprised. So what's safe, Mercedes, Lexus, or BMW from a luxury car standpoint? Well, it turns out, you know, glass alone is pretty good. Just glass, no tint, no nothing. It's pretty good at absorbing UVB. Um, if you have UVA, you really need something extra. And most of the front windows of almost any car are actually quite good. The real risk comes in from the side windows. That's where the problem is, because the passage of ultraviolet through those side windows is anywhere from 44 to 96% blocked. Now, 96% is good, 44% not so good. The absolute worst was VW, but they were just a smidge worse than Mercedes and BMW. The best car in terms of blocking ultraviolet through the windshields, particularly the sides, the best car was actually a Lexus. Now, for your, sometimes I've had patients do this where they'll come in and they'll ask in our state, you can't put that UV absorbing filter on the, the sheets unless you have permission to do so and you need it medically. And I've had patients ask for that. And the reason they don't like, the law enforcement doesn't like that is because it's usually dark and it makes it harder for the police to look in. So they're afraid somebody's reaching for a gun if they have a traffic stop and they can't see what's going on inside the car cabin. So it's really reasonable to ask for the side sheets to absorb ultraviolet if you have a patient with a very bad history of skin cancer. Uh, but the front doesn't need to be tinted. That's actually quite good on almost everybody. A new therapy for advanced Merkel cell carcinoma involves blockade of what? PD-1, PD-L1 interaction, sonic hedgehog pathway, CTLA-4, epidermal growth factor receptors, or BRAF activity in the setting of a mutation. What do you think? And our answers displayed this way are all over the board. Good, so you all learned something. So it's PD-1. Now, this is with pembrolizumab, which is really indicated primarily for Merkel cell carcinoma. But it turns out in a small study, and all these are small, because we don't see gazillions of Merkel cell carcinoma patients, but in a small study, there actually was an objective response, either complete or partial in over 50%. That's the first time anything has worked on Merkel cell carcinoma. And look, four of 26 responders were complete. That means it's gone. It's gone clinically, it's gone histologically. And the side effects, not so bad. Advanced side effects, you grade them one, two, three, four, three and four were only 15%. So this PD1, PD1, PDL1 inhibition is important. And that's where it works, because the tumor cells carry something that interact with the T cells that should be destroying tumor, and they, in turn, send 
because that interacts, it sends a message to the T cell not to do what it should be doing. So if you block that interaction, the T cell can be an effective method of self-tumor eradication. Now it turns out that pembrolizumab is not approved for Merkur cell. This was an interesting study. But shortly after this study was published, there was an approval of a drug which has the same mechanism of action. It's called avilumab, and it's for approved for metastatic Merkel cell. It will also be approved for Merkel cell, like if you're doing surgery and you're not sure you got it all. Or maybe it'll be administered as an adjunct to surgery because this is such a highly recurring one out of three Merkel cells after adequate, quote, adequate histologically controlled excision will recur. And since recurrent disease is very bad and carries a high mortality rate, this may end up being an adjunct. We don't know where it's going to go. But right now, it's approved for metastatic Merkel cell. It does the same thing as pembrolizumab, exactly the same thing, blocks that same interaction. It does have some significant potential side effects, including basically autoimmune responses because the T cells are unleashed. So you can have an autoimmune hepatitis, colitis, nephritis, pneumonitis. All that's treatable. If you're dead from metastatic Merkel cell, it is irrelevant. So we won't administer that. But it's important to understand that there is an approved drug. There's another one that's not specifically approved but looks very good for Merkel cells. So if you have a Merkel cell that's gotten out of hand, you have drugs that the medical oncologist can administer. And by the way, there are cutaneous side effects. So if your patients are getting one of these PD-1 inhibitors for melanoma or potentially for Merkel cell carcinoma, they might get a nonspecific drug rash that's quite common. Itching is very common, one out of five, and it's hard to control, I can tell you that. Vitiligo, almost 10% of patients who get these will develop vitiligo, and you use standard therapeutics, not very commonly alopecia areata. Okay, an arm nevus count of how many correlates highly with total nevus body count of over 100, which in turn correlates with melanoma. Six, eight, nine, 11, or 15? Okay, 42% of you said over 11, so a little over half had other numbers in mind. Well, it turns out, if you actually do this, it's over 11, 11 or more on one arm, nevi, correlates with over 100 on the trunk, which correlates with the risk of melanoma. And that's very easily and quickly accomplished. So keep that in mind as a quick screen for high-risk patients. How about alcohol? Well, it turns out that increased risk of melanoma is associated with alcohol, but that increased risk is fairly small. It's greatest on the trunk, and the greatest risk is with white wine. So I guess while you're out at the pool, having a little something to drink with hopefully sunscreen on, but even if not, uh, it's best to just go to vodka. <laughs> so the good news, bad news, people like to drink while they're outside. But the good news is a lot of places where folks 
go to swim, particularly beaches and lakes, not so much hotels, because they want to sell that alcohol, but beaches and lakes are now forbidding alcohol there, because it leads to violent behavior and car wrecks and all kinds of other things. So lots of no alcohol allowed signs up, but not in the hotels, of course. And then there's melanoma in women less than 50. And this was really an interesting article because those who develop melanoma during pregnancy or within one year have a bad prognosis. And that's different from some other recent articles which have all said, no, it's just the type of melanoma, the thickness of the melanoma that correlates with a bad prognosis, it has nothing to do with pregnancy. But this was a pretty large study done by the Cleveland Clinic. Look at the risk. The risk of death, five times greater. The risk of metastasis, almost seven times greater. The risk of recurrence, nine times greater. So I think you have to take this message to heart. And if you have a woman who develops melanoma while she's pregnant, the therapy doesn't change, but your follow-up should be a little more rigorous. And if the patient doesn't show up, you pursue them to get in for their follow-up. Or even within a year of pregnancy, all these risk factors are still elevated. So watch out for melanoma associated with pregnancy. And those were all in young women, obviously. How about cutting out a melanoma? A nice Australian review, it's 100 patients, but they were followed for almost four years. And it turns out if you cut over two centimeters, sort of the biggest margin we now recommend, if you cut three centimeters or four centimeters, it didn't matter. It didn't increase their survival rate. Treatment with topical 5% imiquimod reliably leads to complete clinical and histologic cure of lentigo maligna. True or false? Okay, three quarters of you say false. You know, this is a trendy thing, and there are some centers where this is routinely done. Well, here was a study, and this was done in Britain. It was a phase two proof of concept. Like, let's make sure it works, then we're gonna do a big phase three study. And they treated five times weekly with 5% in Mikkelmod for 12 weeks. Everything was amenable to resection, so then they resected the area even if there was nothing visible. And they did step sections and looked for any pathological residual. And it turns out complete pathologic cure was only about a third. That means, and there were some that looked gone that were not gone. Most of the time, if it clinically looked gone, it histologically was gone. If it clinically looked like it was still there, was histologically still there, but there were exceptions to both of those. And the one that's scary is it looks like it's gone, but there's still residual tumor. So what the, the authors concluded was, it was so bad, it shouldn't go to a phase three study. Now, I'm not standing here to criticize any of you or your offices if you use imicomod for lenticum maligna, because they're difficult, aren't they? Sometimes they're real big. Sometimes you can't get to the edge of clear margin, no matter what you do. But as a routine monotherapy, there are enough failures that I don't think this is justified. Maybe if you're getting to the edge and you still have activity, using it around an edge 
might be helpful as an adjunct to surgery. Now, the criticism of this article is that they only did five times a week. Why not seven? Why not every day? And they only did 12 weeks. Why not 16 weeks? Why not 20 weeks? Well, you can always say that, that they should have done this or they should have done that. But this is kind of a standard regimen. It's what's routinely done in many institutions, and it did not work. So keep that in mind. How about this one? When a cutaneous horn sits on top of a squamous cell carcinoma, which of these statements is false? A horned squamous cell carcinoma is less deeply invasive. A horned squamous cell is smaller in diameter. Horned squamous cell carcinoma tends to be better differentiated. Horned squamous cell carcinoma is tender or it tends to occur on the trunk. Which one of these is false? Okay, half of you have the right answer. The other half distributed among all the wrong answers. So it turns out in this article where they looked at squamous cell carcinomas and some of them had a horn like one of these and one, some of them didn't, which was another one of these, almost in the exact same place there. These are my patients. This is a large scale study, so 1,600 plus invasive squamous cells. Five year follow up, so that's pretty long time, Australian done. And the ones with little horns on top of them tend to occur not on the trunk, they tend to occur on the hand, wrist, and forearm, or on the nose and ear. I think we've all seen them on the ear. That's really quite common. They tend to be less deeply invasive, smaller diameter, and although it wasn't statistically significant, the trend was really towards being better differentiated. So a squamous cell carcinoma surmounted by a cutaneous horn is less likely to be of high risk. Now, is that biological activity? Is there something about growing a horn that makes that squamous cell not so bad? Some people have looked at this article and said, well, obviously, if you've got a horn sitting here, it attracts attention, and so it gets earlier surgical intervention or some other intervention, radiotherapy, topical therapy. So not so sure, but it was pretty striking. You still treat them, obviously, but a cutaneous horn on top of a squamous cell tends to be a better prognostic lesion. Now, how about cryosurgery? Think about yourself. How long you freeze an actinic keratosis, okay? This was part of another study that was really looking at inginal mebutate in combination with cryo, but they looked at the cryo wing, just cryo, and it turns out that five to eight seconds versus one to four seconds, I don't think anybody freezes one second, but five to eight, that's eight seconds. I think most don't freeze eight seconds. But on the higher end, five to eight, actually did better than one to four seconds. And a double freeze thaw, so you treat them, it thaws, and you retreat them, did better than a single freeze thaw. Just think about yourself. Maybe next time you're treating an actinic keratosis, time yourself or have someone time you. And if you're freezing for four seconds, which is a pretty reasonable freeze in my book, you probably should freeze another second. Five to eight, better outcomes. 
Recent epidemiologic data suggests mycosis fungoides may be associated with exposure to which of these materials? Aromatic hydrocarbons, heavy metals, polyphenols, plant bioflavonoids, or exogenous estrogens? What do you think? So, a nice spread. No one seemed to like plant bioflavonoids because we feel good about plant bioflavonoids, right? But uh, spread out pretty evenly around the rest of the things. So this was a pretty small study published in International Journal of Dermatology. It was in a case series of five from Israel. And what everybody in Israel has to do compulsory military service, everybody. I mean, I, I, if you're really debilitated, you can be exempt. But pretty much everybody, men and women. And when they went back and they looked at these five mycosis fungoides patients, they asked them what they did in the military, and five out of five had exposure to things like jet fuel, hydraulic oils, petroleum distillates, benzene, cresol, xylene, and toluene. Most of them were working in the Air Force, and they were working with these aromatic hydrocarbons in relationship to jet fighters. So this would be an interesting study to redo in the US at our veterans hospitals because we have Army, Navy, Air Force, you know, everybody's represented there. And it would be interesting to see, and we have a lot of CTCL, mostly mycosis fungoides type. It would be interesting to see if that holds true because we have large numbers of veterans. But I point this out. I know it's a small study and it's sort of preliminary, but I point this out. If you have a patient who's exposed to sun, maybe they grew up in a sunny area, or they grew up on a farm, they like to play golf every weekend, and their past history, you know, so they might be predisposed to malignancy, maybe. And their past history, maybe, involves exposure to aromatic hydrocarbons, either in industry or in the military in particular. Maybe they're ones you need to kind of keep an eye on. If somebody comes in with a eruption and you do make the diagnosis mycosis fungoides, ask their past history and see if they were exposed to these kind of chemicals. I think it's interesting. I don't think it's definitive, but it is an interesting epidemiologic study. Which of these is preferable? You have sterile and non-sterile gloves, of course, no powder anymore, but sterile or non-sterile. I thought this was great. It was a meta-analysis of 12,725 procedures, unique procedures done on unique patients. And the infection rate, whether you use sterile gloves or non-sterile gloves, was exactly the same. You know, they all prepped the skin appropriately. Obviously, they did this in a clean, if not sterile, environment. But wearing sterile gloves or non-sterile gloves made absolutely no difference. So I say save money and use non-sterile gloves. Okay, if you're grunging around in some deep wound trying to close it, you know, taking out a big lipoma, I'd probably rather have a sterile glove uh, and a nice sterile field. But I think for routine excisions, I don't think it makes a difference. So, and here's a study that proves that, over 12,000 procedures. Let's talk just a little bit about acne. This was an interesting study using adapalene benzyl peroxide gel, you know what that is. And they did a split face, and they watched what happened over time. It was six months worth of time. Relatively small study, 
But at the end, those who had used this product on one side of the face had less atrophic scarring compared to the side that wasn't treated. Now, there's two takeaways here, maybe. Perhaps this particular product is really good. If you look at an acne patient and think, oh, this is the kind that's going to scar, or maybe it just means that topical therapy in general is something good to do if you look at the patient and say, oh, this is the one that might scar. So I'm not so sure this is product specific, but it clearly indicates the topical adjunct. At this point, somebody who's going to scar, you look at them, you're probably going to do something systemic. But topical therapy is an adjunct that may, in fact, reduce their risk of ultimately scarring. Now, when you give isotretinoin, how many of you check triglycerides routinely during their therapy? Yeah, majority. Some don't. Well, those of you who don't might actually be right. So this was a retrospective review of the literature looking for pancreatitis. That's one of the reasons I was taught if you had triglycerides that were over about 7 to 800, that patient's at risk for pancreatitis, and you need to stop the isotretinoin. Well, it turns out it doesn't really be borne out by the, by the actual review of cases. First of all, there are so few, 26 in the world's literature, not a whole lot. Two of them already had elevated triglycerides substantially, even before they took isotretinoin number one. And there was no magic number in these 26 cases that could predict an increased risk of pancreatitis. So it turns out maybe that the pancreatitis is really an idiosyncratic thing. It really doesn't correlate with triglycerides. And maybe you don't really need to check those every month and pre and post therapy. On the other hand, it's the US. Are any of you also lawyers? OK, the scum-sucking parasites of society are out there waiting to get us. And it is sort of standard practice to check lipids, particularly triglycerides, while people are on isotretinoin. And God forbid something happens, or they get an elevated triglyceride, they go to their primary care health care provider, and they say, oh, that dermatology person didn't check your triglycerides. Oh, bad person. They elevated them by trying to treat your acne? Oh, bad person. So you know you could get in medical legal risk by not checking them. But I'm here to say this was pretty convincing, the way it was written, and the analysis they did of the only cases in the world literature, that checking triglycerides are not going to prevent your patients from banning pancreatitis. Risks of administration of minocycline include vestibular dysfunction, autoimmune lupus, autoimmune hepatitis, Hyperpigmentation of the skin are all of the above. Good. It's all of the above. And the reason I asked that is this was a very nice paper comparing modified release doxycycline, you know the brand, versus minocycline for the treatment of rosacea. And it turned out they basically were the same, and depending on what parameter you were looking, minocycline at 100 milligrams a day was actually better than modified release 40 milligrams doxycycline, which is, of course, approved for rosacea. But there are risks, all of the above, and so minocycline remains a second-line agent. 
but it does work, and that's the take-home message. It does work for rosacea. Psoriasis, there's good news, bad news, and news. So TNF-alphas and diabetes, you know, we know that the metabolic syndrome accompanies psoriasis, particularly severe psoriasis at a younger age. And it turns out in this study, again, it was a relatively small study, but those who had type 2 diabetes associated with their psoriasis, they were put on a TNF-alpha versus a conventional therapy. Conventional therapy included acetretin and methotrexate and phototherapy. If they were put on a TNF-alpha, it lowered their fasting blood sugar, lowered their hemoglobin A1c, and they had less insulin resistance. So there may be an ancillary benefit. When you're sitting there thinking, okay, what do I give this bad psoriatic? And they also have type 2 diabetes, there might be a justification for going right to the TNF-alpha inhibitor. And then we're worried about this now with all the IL-17 biologics coming on board because it may block the specific response to candida. So these people looked at how often did individuals get cutaneous or oropharyngeal candidiasis. And it turns out that IL-17 blockers a little higher than etanercept as a representative of TNF-alpha and eustachinumab's up there, but it's really the IL-17 blockers. So we do have to know that that's a risk. And then the Infectious Disease Society of America provided the therapy in a nice review. So what do you think would be the appropriate dose of fluconazole for acute cutaneous candidiasis? So that would be under the breasts, in the axilla, in the, you know, the groin. 150 milligram once, 100 milligrams every day for three to seven days, 150 a day for seven to 14 days, 300 milligrams a day for 14 to 21 days, or 150 weekly for six months. What do you think is the proper dose of fluconazole for cutaneous candidiasis? Nice spread. I love it when they're kind of spread out like this because that means 80% mm, of you will learn something. So this was the Infectious Disease Society. Now remember, these are just guidelines, of course, but they had this nice chart, and so this is in your uh, obtainable handout, and it's a nice thing just to keep around in case you forget. Cutaneous candidiasis is 100 milligrams a day, three to seven days, the duration of therapy based on the severity. For thrush, it's 150 a day. For seven to 14 days, the duration of therapy based upon severity. The only single dose fluconazole is for acute vulvovaginal candidiasis. So that would be the appropriate dose if that's where the candida is. But if it's on the skin, under the breast, and the groin, and the axilla, it's 100 a day for three to seven days. Oh, bad news. Turns out if you have psoriasis, you're also at insurrecist for abdominal aortic aneurysm. Let's just keep adding comorbidities. Uh, the more severe, the more likely. And then eustachinumab, I think I showed this last year, but I'm showing it again because it's so important. Eustachinumab's my go-to drug uh, for bad disease when TNF-alphas are contraindicated or don't work, or sometimes I use it at the outset because I think it's been a pretty reliable drug in my hands. But if you have someone who's failed TNF-alphas already, the improvement is not as good with eustachinumab as if you have a biologic naive patient.
And while it wasn't statistically significant, there was clearly a trend. The more TNF-alpha drugs failed, so if they failed at Tanercept and they failed adalimumab, the less likely even that ustekinumab is to be your savior drug. So it's a good drug. I love it. Use it a lot. But it may not always work in your TNF-alpha inhibitor failures, just so you understand that. Atopy. The persistence of atopic dermatitis into adulthood and the severity of disease are both associated with exposure to cigarette smoke. True or false? Y'all don't like cigarettes? Oh my God. You know, North Carolina, my, my twins went to the University of North Carolina, so we visited there a lot. And North Carolina and Virginia grow a lot of tobacco. It's the only place I've ever been in a restaurant where there was a sign in the front, thanks for smoking. Okay, you're right, don't smoke. If you're an adolescent with atopic dermatitis, an adult with persistent disease, or if you're a child and your parents are exposing you to secondhand smoke, bad, it makes it worse, it makes it persist. Smoking should be banned from the environment and from the people who have atopic dermatitis. I, there's one thing that smoking is good for, nicotine is good for, and it tends to reduce severity or tends to reduce the likelihood in someone genetically predisposed to develop inflammatory bowel disease, particularly Crohn's. And nicotine patches are actually used to treat that. Other than that, I can't think of one damn thing that cigarettes are really good for. Okay, ustekinumab again with atopic dermatitis. Okay, it's an N of 10. Four out of 10 achieved clear or almost clear. Six out of 10 didn't respond. So it's not a panacea. We have a lot of new drugs coming online now for atopic dermatitis. But this is one other thing to think about. Obtaining permission to use it from the insurance company is going to be your biggest problem. And I would suggest you don't lie. But if you can get it, and I've used it on a few atopic dermatitis patients, and I've had some response. So it may be something else in the long list of new drugs we can give for atopic dermatitis. And then look at this. Atopic dermatitis is turning out to be like psoriasis. There are other comorbidities in this particular German study. Rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, not diabetes. But there's a whole long list now. So just like psoriasis, your atopic patients need to be watched and periodically a nice review of systems just to see if anything else is going on. And then this was an interesting thing. These are atopic patients. It's a UK um, network, so Britain. And they had impetigo and they had molluscum. Okay, we all know that. And that's to be expected. But also they had increased risk of strep pharyngitis and 200% increased risk with age sex match controls in the same health network, so in the same geographic area, of otitis media. So your atopic patients may have other infections and you need to monitor them, particularly the young ones where hygiene may or may not occur at all. But in the same vein, here was an interesting study on using antibiotics quickly for what looked like mildly infected eczema. 
and they either gave topical antibiotics with a placebo pill or a real pill antibiotic with a placebo cream or placebo both pill and cream, and it made no difference, none at all. So when somebody assume, you know, someone with atopic dermatitis becomes secondarily infected, yes, I treat it too, but keep in mind if it's sort of a coin toss, whether it's really infected or it's just flaring and oozing a little more, I wouldn't jump in to give antibiotics quickly. Bad infection, yes, but jumping in, no. Other infections, just so you know, a really nice review of tinea capitis, turns out based on all this retrospective analysis that terbinafines for trichophyton tonsurans, the most common cause now. Griseofulvin does better with microsporum species like microsporum canis. It isn't that either one won't work on the other species, but you're probably better to sort them this way, and you probably are better to culture and find out what's the cause of their tinea capitis. Up to what percent of children 18 and under have onychomycosis? 0 0.2, 0 0.8, 2.6, 3.4, or 4.1? Okay, a nice spread. You're, you're right, you're kind of clustered in the lower numbers there, but congratulations to the one out of three of you who said 2.6 because in this wonderful review, it's 0.2 to 2.6. 2.6 is max. It does seem to be increasing. It's more common if the child has Down syndrome, but it seems to be increasing as almost every child does some athletic activity, and they wear those stinky, sweaty little sneakers that they never take off. So maybe occlusion, maybe hyperhidrosis down there, um, exogenous hyperhidrosis might be a responsible thing. Maybe microtrauma to the nail. Think about playing soccer, where you're actually making an entranceway between the nail and the tissue underneath the nail for the fungi to enter. It does seem to be increasing. It's still uncommon. Now, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Polyurea urethane is a film you put on. It's approved for the improvement of onychodystrophy, funky nails no matter what the cause. And it does seem to be of benefit. And it turns out that both of our new topical antifungal agents approved for onychomycosis can penetrate right through this. There's no study that's used this as a combination therapy, the polyurea urethane and the antifungal on top of it, because it can penetrate. That's been proven now. There's no study that says that does better. But somebody needs to do that study. And if you felt like doing that on some patients, where you think topical therapy is okay, but might not work so well, I would applaud you for doing that. Molluscum contagiosum, how about curatage? So this is an interesting study from Israel. They looked four years, over 2,000 children. They used EMLA, so they used local anesthesia. They did curatage, and look at what they said. 70% cured with one treatment, 26% additionally cured with two treatments, Math was never my strong suit, but that's 96%. So curatage does work for molluscum contagiosum. In fine print, in the article though, they said they used propofol, remember Michael Jackson? Propofol, and nitrous oxide when there were multiple lesions or involvement of the face or genitalia. Well, multiple lesions defines every molluscum patient I see. So 
Yes, but, I, I leave it to your discretion. Hepatitis C, hepatitis C is important to us because it's associated with lichen planus and porphyria cutanea tarda. So hepatitis C, there are different ways to treat it. And it turns out when you get anti-hepatitis C drugs, as opposed to nonspecific therapy, namely interferon, there's an increased risk of herpes activation, particularly herpes zoster. So you might see this, someone might be sent for zoster, or they might call up, you might know they're hepatitis C positive because you're dealing with their lichen planus or you're dealing with their porphyria, so you already know they're hep C positive, and then they get treated and all of a sudden they call up and say, oh my God, my chest really hurts, although I don't see anything, it's probably zoster coming. That's the importance of this article. Direct treatment, direct antiviral treatment as opposed to interferon, will lead to increased risk of herpes, particularly herpes zoster. Collagen vascular disease, I just want to point out, animalarials take a while to work. This was a retrospective review of the literature going back to 1976. Hydroxychloroquine tended to be a little better than chloroquine, not statistically significant, but a little better. It's the one we usually use anyhow. And it does much better for acute SLE than it does for DLE. It still works, but not quite as well, or lupus profundus. And the biggest thing I took away from this article was it required a minimum of three months to often show improvement. So you have to just stick with it. Rituximab may work for dermatomyositis. This was a small study. It's the only one that's been positive. There have been other studies, and they've generally been negative but maybe it's a, so miscellaneous things. Eczema laser combined with stuff for vitiligo. So they took a bunch of patients, 82 stable vitiligo patients. They treated them with eczema monotherapy. They'd never had eczema laser before, or eczema plus trichrolimus at 0.1, the higher dose, twice a day, or eczema plus clobetazole twice a day. And the best results were eczema plus tacrolimus, 0.1, twice a day, over a short period of time. I point this out because we all struggle treating vitiligo, and this is one thing you can do, combination therapy. And then here's another one, bimatoprost. You know what that's for, your eyelashes, but it's also used in the ophthalmology. They used bimatoprost or bimatoprost plus mometasone, or mometasone alone, again, to treat stable non-facial vitiligo. So I don't know if any of this applies to the face, which is really outside of the hands, the most important place you're treating vitiligo because that's what everybody sees. And it turns out the combo therapy was better. Response was modest, but bimodoprus might be an adjunct, like tacrolimus is an adjunct to your other therapies for vitiligo. And here's a before and after. It's better, but it's not gone. Okay, hydradenitis, I want to just remind you, although we have an approved biologic drug, which does not always work, I must say, surgery is still an option for hydradenitis. The thing that does the worst is incision and drainage because there are more recurrences with that. It's better to do unroofing and marsupialization, so you basically take out the channel, you can cure it and desiccate it, or excision and block of an area all the way down to and including fat. And a lot of these were allowed to heal by secondary intent. 
So surgery is still well-planned. It can be in combination with surgeons. It's still a reasonable approach to hydradenitis. And here's one example from this article. They just let that heal by secondary intent. Now, it took a while, as you might expect, but that was it. It healed. It's okay. It's a scar. It's under the arm. How many people are going to look in this person's axilla? Not too many. And it resolved the hydradenitis. So end-block excision is something you should think about. If medical therapy is not working, surgery is still an option. Hydradenitis, here's another medical surgery, medical approach. And this was with minocycline, once a day, 100 milligrams, along with colchicine, 0.5. And they had a long, convoluted explanation why colchicine might work. You know, colchicine at TID, which is the standard dosing, is actually a major problem from the GI standpoint. But at BID dosing, it's generally well tolerated. So they did that combination for six months, and then they just went on colchicine, no longer minocycline, but colchicine, as their maintenance treatment twice a day for another three months. And every single one of the 20 patients in this study either improved or cleared. I like innovative new ways of approaching things. It's an Anna 20. I don't know if it'll work. Try it. Vitamin and mineral deficiencies in telogen effluvium, again, something we sometimes struggle to treat or when time just doesn't heal it. So the common deficiencies they found were ferritin, vitamin D, and zinc. So the first means there's iron deficiency, vitamin D, and zinc. These were both in acute telogen effluvium as well as those patients who are the real problems. The chronic, it just never goes away, telogen effluvium, and the inciting event or drug is in the far distant past. And they suggested that you should check for these and replete if the patient was found to be deficient. Now, that's not the same study as taking 100 telogen effluviums, finding these deficiencies, treating and comparing them to people you didn't have deficiency and see who heals quicker, who regrows their hair quicker. So that's not what the study was all about. It was about deficiencies you might think about in telogen effluvium. And, you know, it's reasonable to replete vitamin D if it's below about 20 to 30, and it's reasonable to think about repleting zinc if it's deficient, and iron certainly. Uh, but that may or may not correlate with telogen effluvium's resolution. A good drug for the rapid relief of signs and symptoms of DRESS syndrome. Cyclosporin, minocycline, azathioprine, methotrexate, or mycophenolate. Da, da, da. Okay, 39%, pretty good for the right answer, a cyclosporin. So this was an N2. It's not a big study. But you know, the other alternative is protracted high-dose steroids. And it turns out in these two people, in less than a week, they had rapid improvement of their dress syndrome. So just keep that in mind as an alternative. They used a good dose, five milligrams per kilogram. And then this is an interesting retrospective study, smallish number, not even 80, but close, from China, where they looked at steroids. You know, all of life to me seems to be a pendulum. When you've been around long enough, do it, don't do it, do it, don't do it. You know, what's true today isn't true tomorrow. But it turns out 
They used steroids, they didn't have a whole lot of adverse events, and they had good response when they were treating Stevens-Johnson and toxic epidermal necrolysis. You know, for a while, IVIG was all the rage. Um, I was just at a meeting where Neil Shear, who's the drug, the drug rash expert of the world from Canada, and he was talking about how steroids are now replacing IVIG, which replaced steroids for the treatment of Stevens-Johnson and, and TEN. And it turns out it probably is a pretty good treatment after all. Maybe we were just giving too high a dose. So think about this as long as it doesn't, the steroid dose doesn't exceed two milligrams per kilogram per day. Maybe this is the best way to treat Stevens-Johnson and TEN. Mixoid cyst, I showed this last year, but so many people were interested, I showed it again, showing it again, so that if you didn't see it last year, you see it now. Mixoid cyst, what they did was, they sucked out all that mucinous material, and they replaced it exactly with polydocanol. In other words, they just, they injected right back into the mixoid cyst of the digit and refilled it. They didn't cram it in, they didn't put more in, just enough so it assumed its original shape. In six weeks, two-thirds of these plus were gone. In 12 weeks, after a single injection, over three-quarters of them were gone. And for those that weren't gone, they gave a second injection. Ultimately, they got over 80% to resolve doing this. Yes, there is some inflammation. Yes, there's some joint stiffness and pain. And there might be ecchymoses, all of which goes away. So I've done this now about 20 times, and damn, it's worked every single time. So that's pretty cool, because otherwise, you know, repetitively poking them and draining them or sending them to the surgeon to get some problem, yes, often these do communicate with the joint space, and you wonder about putting a sclerosing agent in there, but it seems to be safe. Yes, it's stiff. Yes, it's sore. But the myxoid cysts go away. Nothing left, not a mark. So it's an interesting new treatment. Isotretinoin for seborrheic dermatitis, of course, your biggest problem is going to have access to the drug, insurance approval. But think about isotretinoin if your other methods of treating sebderm haven't worked. And they used an itty-bitty little dose, 10 milligrams every other day. And it worked as well or actually better than the topical therapy, which is the sort of standard therapy. So, if you can get the drug for the patient, this might be a nice way to treat really, really bad seborrheic dermatitis. Itty bitty dose of isotretinoin, 10 milligrams every other day. Vices, just to point out, this cooling device is approved in the US. It's been around in Europe forever. It's to prevent hair loss following chemotherapy. It's only approved for breast cancer chemotherapy in the US. Outside the US, it's used for all sorts of chemotherapy where hair loss is a likely event. And here's an example. This woman should have lost all her hair based on traditional response to the chemotherapeutic regimen that she received. And yet at the end of her chemotherapy, she still has hair. Having had a wife and a daughter who went through chemotherapy and lost all their hair, I know how traumatic this can be up close and personal. So, if you have a patient, and they might ask you because you're the experts in skin and hair and nails. They might ask you, you know, oh, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm going to go get chemotherapy. I heard it causes hair loss. What do you think? 
ask them to ask their oncologist if the oncologist has not suggested it about this cooling device for the scalp. It is approved in the US. Insurance pays for it. So keep that in mind should your patient ask you. And then I'm closing on low-level laser therapy for androgenetic alopecia. OK, there's a bunch of studies. Most of them actually show positive results, whether you're looking at hair count or hair density or even hair thickness and tensile strength. And every five out of five studies where patient satisfaction were measured, patient was, was happy. So really? Really? This works? I remain a tiny bit skeptical about this. But if you look at the literature based on this retrospective review, um, OK, maybe it does work. So these devices are three to $800. So if you have a patient who's thinning and they want something done and they don't want to take minoxidil topically or they don't want to take Propecia orally or whatever, and they've got a spare, say, $600 laying around, they can go try it. OK, I will just tell you, parenthetically, Uncle Teddy's personal experience with this. Not me personally. I don't care. But my, I do care. But I think I'm pretty good for Medicare Plus. Um, <laughs> with my patients, I haven't had a success yet. But it's good for the economy. So that's the way I look at it. <laughs> Thank you very much for your kind attention. The overall performance of the speaker. I suggest a six. <laughs> How useful will this session be in your practice? Right in, oh my god, yes. As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? I'm going to keep a concealed weapon in my exam rooms. <laughs> OK, so we have a few questions, and I left a couple minutes for questions. Would you consider imiquimod for lenigo malignant, an elderly, infirm patient who may not be primarily an ideal candidate for surgery? I mean, yeah, that's, that's a good question because it shows concern for the patient. And everything is adaptable, and everything should be considered in the context of the patient who's in that room or in that nursing home that you are responsible for. Sure. Because it does have some success. It wasn't like it didn't work at all. And in some institutions, like Dartmouth, they use this all the time. It's routine. So yes, I might consider it in that situation. But I would not use it as my routine first-line therapy for lenigo maligna. Um, reminder, use the app. Oh, OK. I have kids with onychomycosis. They're not of the age to be able to swallow terbinafine. But parents are embarrassed by it at pools to use griseofulvin. Absolutely not. Griseofulvin doesn't cure onychomycosis in any age group. Long ago, rejected even for adults. What I would do is I would do the terbinafine and I would you know, crush up the tablets and put it in something like um, peanut butter and give it to them crushed up. I've done that. 
The other thing you can do is you can use fluconazole solution, which is actually approved for children, not for onychomycosis. Um, that's off-label, but I would still go with terbinafine as your first line. Do you find that cauterization, because at high temperature, if it helps mollusca more than liquid nitrogen? You know, I've done both. I don't think there's much of a difference. Uh, I think a quick zip hurts less than a prolonged shh. So I tend to do that a little more. You know, if you have the time and they only have five, the best thing to do is just pluck the core out with a 30-gauge needle, because you can do that painlessly, and then they just involute. But I think either one of those is a reasonable thing. The other thing for molluscum, okay, this is on Cateti. I'm not a pediatric dermatologist, so most of the people I treat are either adult atopics or have it in the pubic area from sexual contact. So another thing that works is KOH. Small drop applied with a toothpick to the molluscum once a day and they kind of necrose and go away, and it's pretty painless. You have to supply the KOH, so I give them a little vial that's this big with a little 10% KOH, apply it to your molluscum once a day till they go away. Um, what are your thoughts of antifungal creams or gels, econazole or cycloperox, in addition to Nuvail for onychomycosis instead of Jubilee or Keratin, uh, since they're not covered by, often by insurance? Don't know. I don't know if econazole or cycloperox will penetrate. I showed that article specifically because we know now that tavaboral and afiniconazole will penetrate. If it penetrates, fine, but I don't know. They're different kind of agents, so I don't know. I came across a study that suggests pulse dosing with PO steroids and topical calcipatrin can help with early onset vitiligo. Um, I think early onset unstable vitiligo, yes, absolutely. And I usually give them short course uh, <clears throat> of steroids. I use dexamethasone, but I think you could use anything. And I think that stabilizes the disease. So thank you very much. I will see you again later in the conference. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.